thanks for joining us for this week's Ask the Pastor, uh, live here in the church building. I'm in my office, and uh, it's great that you could join me. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm Jonathan, if you're just tuning in for the first time, and I'm the pastor here at Woodford Baptist Church, and it's great to welcome you into this church uh, by uh, joining us on this stream. If you wanted to ask a question, you could write a question in the comments. I've got a screen here that enables me to see uh, that the, there are questions coming in. If you want to say hi, that's good. And you can tell me where you're from. That'd be lovely as well. So please uh, do that. Uh, that would be a really good thing. Now, I have several questions that have been sent in already. And so I'm going to begin with those in a few minutes. Uh, but hopefully there'll be time at the end if you had a question and you wanted to ask it, then you should be able to do that. Um, so uh, let's dig in and uh, we'll begin at the very uh, beginning. And uh, Ruth, who's a member of the church here, sent in a really great question. And uh, the question she asked was, uh, which person from the Old Testament would I most like to meet? And I rack my brains about this, Ruth. It's such a good question. I was kind of tempted to think about Joshua because I love Joshua and there's a couple of things that I'd be particularly interested in. Joshua had a vision of Jesus before the time of Jesus. So uh, I would love to just kind of catch up with him and find out what that was like, how it was for Joshua to be leading the people of God through a season that he in himself probably didn't need to walk through. The reason they wandered in the wilderness is because there was a lack of faith, but it wasn't Joshua or his friend Caleb who had the lack of faith, but the wider people of Israel, how did he sustain faith in that exile time? Did he feel that he was being unjustly treated? I have all kinds of questions for Joshua, but I thought it probably wouldn't be Joshua. I wondered about um, Daniel, because Daniel would seem really timely. Daniel was somebody who also had an exile experience taken from Israel and off into uh, Babylon, into Nebuchadnezzar's uh, world. And uh, how did he sustain faith with all the challenges that are around him? And I've been reading a great book recently that explores this idea that the online space is a kind of digital Babylon, not just in a negative, sinful kind of way, but just in that attitude of anything goes and it's a place where some of the norms and values are different and so uh, i'd love to know how daniel kind of sustained that or shadrach meshach abednego what was it like to to be in that fire you know were they sustained and held through the whole time lots of great new testament characters for moses lots of questions about you know the burning bush and all kinds of things but i figure in the end the character i would most like to spend a big chunk of time with would be david i quite like david i think in the old testament he probably is my favorite character in the new testament i identify very strongly with peter uh, a hothead i mentioned this in our sunday live stream last weekend i, I get where peter's coming from and then there's david who i would just love to have a conversation with He's somebody that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. And there's something in him that messes up but keeps on pushing on. And there's something about his heart which is very human but very focused on God. And there was something about him that cherished intimacy with God. I'd love to know how he got so free that he could just dance in his underwear in the street because God had done an amazing thing. 
not that I want to go dancing in the street in my underwear, but there's something about David that I find really appealing. Uh, the things that he lived through, the things that he did, this idea that he was after God's heart with all of his imperfections, and somehow there was a connection between him and God, unlike the connections that we see recorded elsewhere in Scripture. So I think in the end, who is it I'd most like to to spend time with, to uh, to meet up with, go for dinner with? I think it will be David. I really do. So thank you for that, uh, Ruth. Uh, if there are questions, uh, please do feel free to ask them on the stream. Uh, that'd be good. My phone is buzzing in my pocket, which might mean I've got a message, uh, which is fine, I haven't, uh, telling me that there's a problem with the live stream or with my camera or the audio, but I think it's going fine. So if you're watching, please do just say hi. Let me know that you're there. I can see there's a number of you watching now. And hi, Richard. It's great to see you and Sue uh, logging in too. Sue, Richard, it's great that you're here. And we're going to come to your questions. Richard asked three questions. You know, why not? If you have the chance, why not ask three? No rule that says it only has to be one. Uh, so the first question Richard asked is, what is my favorite worship song? And I think whatever year you ask me this question, it's going to be a different answer whenever you ask me. And uh, there's just so many incredible worship songs. We're going to touch on worship again later on, hopefully, if we have the time. Nathaniel asked a great question about worship and so i'm hoping that we'll get to his question and actually nathaniel is uh here in the study i'm just going to ask him to pass my coffee because i made a coffee a little while ago and i've left it over next to my coffee maker which was a silly thing to do thank you sunshine that mystery hand appearing off the screen that's him so richard asks, what is my favorite worship song and right now I think it's going to be a song uh, from Hillsongs called uh, So Will I, uh, brackets 100 billion times. And it's this incredible song that speaks about the creation, about how God made everything, the incredible power of God's words as he speaks, and our response to that. What was God doing in creation and how do we respond to that? And for me, there's a lot of people who mock contemporary Christian music and say that it's thin or, or whatever, that doesn't have theology. It's one of the most theological and poetic songs that I've ever sung in my life that reflects on the glory of God, his purpose in creation, the power of his word and our response to him. So uh, currently, it's it's definitely that song, So Will I, 100 Billion Times by Hillsongs. Um, but if you ask me again in six months, it might be something else. And so for me, uh, there are songs that are really important. And in seasons of my life, they've meant more to me than others. Um, and definitely, I could give you a list of 10 songs that really mean a lot to me. But right now, that would be uh, the one. And uh, just saying hi, Sheila's tuning in. Great, Sheila. Thank you. Great to see you. James Somerville from uh, Alabama in the USA is tuning in. James, good to see you. And Ruth? Uh, okay, so Daniel and David, but it would be David that you you would have gone for too. So there we go. We're in tune. That's grand. Uh, so that song for now. Secondly, Richard asked the question, what piece of scripture speaks to you the most? And again, I would say if we're having this relationship with God that is fluid and is dynamic and we're engaging with scripture, that is also something that might keep changing. And I would say at any one time in my life, there have been different passages of scripture that have been speaking to me a lot. So in order to answer this question, I took the long look back and said, over the course of my life of journeying with Jesus, 
what would be the scripture that's kind of sustained a lot of stuff through that? And it's this passage that is found in, uh, in John chapter 13. Uh, it's a passage that I have taught on many times, and it's a passage that inspires me, challenges me, encourages me. It begins this way. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the devil, sorry, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. I'm just going to pause there and just see that's the context. Here's Jesus fully aware of who he is. He knows that the time has come. He's going to be leaving this world. He's going to be returning to the Father. He knows that the Father has sent him. He knows that the Father has put all things under his power. So he is aware that he has a limitless power. He's aware that he is the one that's returning to glory. And so what does he do with that knowledge? What is it that he does in that moment of revelation or fresh understanding or appreciation in a new way of who he is and where is he going? Let's read on. I mean, I know what I might do. I might go and visit those people who said I would never add up to much, or I might go and visit people who owed me something or who'd wronged me and I'd you know, go and get them and or maybe I'd go and prove something or I'd create a platform or I'd write that book I was meant to write or whatever it might be to make myself look big and make sure that other people knew who I was and where I was going. This is what Jesus does. Verse four, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And this passage of scripture over decades i've been a christian for uh, 33 years later this year for decades this has been a scripture that has kept encouraging me and challenging me and inspiring me because what i see in it is this simple truth that if i fully appreciate who i am in god if all of my identity rests in what he says about me if I can base my esteem and worth and value not in my ability to please other people, perform well at tasks, have a platform, a title, a position, if I can base those things instead on the fact that God smiles on me and loves me, then that will set me free. That sets me free so that because I don't have to prove who I am through the work I do, I can do anything. It means that I'm free to go and wash the toilets. I'm free to do any task in the life of the church, set out chairs, make tea and coffee. I'm free to go to the people who will never be noticed by others and do work that will never be seen by other people because I don't have to do that stuff to make me feel good. So if there was one passage of scripture that continually inspires me, encourages me, challenges me, forces me to think about what I'm doing with my life and, and makes me become a better me, it's this one. And the challenge is, can I be so caught up with my, with my father's love for me, so aware of who I am in him that nothing else matters and I'm completely free? 
So the beginning of John 13. And, uh, and it's kind of tied up with your next question, Richard. Richard then asks, what would I say to my young ministry self if I was starting out again? And it would be to never lose sight of this, John chapter 13. It would be to learn quickly and to stay in the place of knowing the Father's love and allowing that to be something that transforms me, shapes me, makes me who he wants me to be. Uh, and there have been seasons in my life when I've tried to make me. There have been seasons in my life when I've tried all kinds of things. But uh, I think with... This year, it'll be 30 years. In fact, what month are we in? It's, it's the end of April. I think next month, the end of next month, I think, May, it'll be 30 years since I first went and worked in a full-time capacity for a church. I went and worked full-time for Beverly Community Church as a youth worker and evangelist 30 years ago. And as I reflect over those 30 years, I think I would want to go back to me 30 years ago and say, this stuff is real the measure of your ministry is directly related to the measure of your awareness of the love of God. It's, it's because Jesus keeps talking about love. It's Paul who says, you know, if I can do all this incredible stuff, but if there's no love in my heart, it's meaningless. If it's not done through love, it's meaningless. It's when we capture his love for us that we love freely other people. And we can only love freely then because, uh, we're not loving with an ulterior motive. And I think that's what I'd go back and say to my younger self, deal with this quicker, get your head around this quicker than I did myself. Great questions, Richard. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate them. I'm just uh, looking at my screen here, scrolling down to see if there are others. There we go. We're going to move on. There's a couple of uh, There's three more questions for us today. So far, it's not too late. If you want to get a question in, uh, please do feel free to write that in the comments and it will appear here on the screen. Kevin asks two questions, the slightly easier one and then what might appear to be a tougher one. And uh, uh, I'll have a go. His first question then is why in the story of David and Goliath, don't the Israelites and Philistines simply go to war? Why, instead of a war, do they seemingly decide to have a one-man duel between a representative from each army to decide an outcome? Was this a common trend or seen elsewhere in the Bible? Firstly, I'm not sure we see it elsewhere in the Bible particularly. We do see people doing heroic things, and there's definitely a kind of echo between the story of David and Goliath and Jonathan, a few chapters earlier, going off and doing his incredible feat. So um, uh, a few chapters later, sorry. So I think there are echoes here that we can see between Jonathan's exploits and uh, and David and Goliath. There's an echo there, the heroic um, leader. But I don't see that we see elsewhere this particular scenario. Uh, but I do think there's uh, several reasons for it. If this works, hopefully I'm going to show you a picture, and uh, this might explain it. Uh, am I going to be able to do that? Oh, doesn't look like I'm going to be able to do that live, which is such a shame. I wanted to show you a picture. Um, I'll put the picture in the comments uh, later on. Um, what I wanted to show you was a picture of the valley, the valley of Illa that is described in this scripture. And what you have is the people of the Philistines and the people of Israel, both uh, on either side of a valley. 
and it's a flat valley with a raise on each side, but quite a long flat valley. So it's not like a straight V. It's two hills and then a flat between them like this. I'll put the picture online after. And uh, it's a great picture because that gives you a hint of what's happening. These armies are encamped on these hillsides, and it's likely, most likely, that there's an impasse. If either army comes forward to seek to engage the other in battle, they're going to be utterly exposed and then they'll be decimated. So you have this standoff. Neither side wants to be the first to go forwards with a kind of charge because that would just be a, a ridiculous thing to do. That's a quick way of losing a battle. It's a long, flat valley, so they don't want to enter into that space. So how do you get over this impasse? You choose a champion. You choose a champion and say, okay, then you choose your best fighter. We'll choose our best fighter. Now, there's no rule that says you have to engage in that. You can just hang out there. But clearly, there's a kind of morale tied up with your champion being the best. And so out come from the Philistines this, this figure, Goliath, who's described in gigantic terms. And David, who we get the images, this simple country boy in some ways. The story is trying to tell us an awful lot more. The story is trying to teach us about re relying on God. The story is about position and authority because, of course, the champion for the Israelites should have been the tallest of them. And if you go back and read the story of how Saul becomes king, you'll realize he was the one that was head and shoulders above everybody else. There's something here about kingship and authority and responsibility that's being taught. It should have been Saul that went off, but it was David. Um, and so I think what the story is teaching us in that one-on-one -on -one is about reliance on God. It's less about the mechanics of war, but I do think that's probably what was happening here. When you take a look at the geography later on, you'll see this, this long, flat valley with hills on each side. And if you imagine an army on each side, neither of them wants to go forward. And so instead, it's this choose your champion. That's what I think is happening there. Second question is uh, one that many people ask. And it's one of the Bible's tough questions. There are two New Testament passages, writes Kevin, one in First uh, Timothy and one in uh, Corinthians, First Corinthians, that talk about women preachers. Um, these two texts, the one in Timothy, Paul writes and says, uh, as everywhere, I urge that women should be silent and that they shouldn't teach men and have authority over men. They should be quiet and learn. And in, uh, and in 1 Corinthians, you have this passage where Paul says, uh, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Shocking. Absolutely shocking texts. Kevin goes on to say, while I believe the Bible is the perfect word of God, I also believe in the wisdom and insight that can be offered by women preachers for men and women. Other than the fact that the role of women historically has been incorrectly viewed as lesser than men. Can I provide any more context to these passages that may help understand how these New Testament passages are now interpreted differently to their original instruction? And I think they have been interpreted differently from their original instruction. So let me just get it straight out of the bat. I think we have either willfully or ignorantly misunderstood these texts 
not just for the last few years or for generations, but for the majority of the church's history. And the reason we've done that is because it has suited men to do that. Uh, men have had little problem with downgrading the role of women. Men have done it all over the church for most of the church's life. And it's been unchallenged for the majority of the church's life. And so it's been easy to misapply these scriptures. Now, you might want to come straight back at me and say, but how is that misapplying? Well, the first thing I'd want to say is because it flies in the face of the other things that Paul says about women in ministry. Have you read Romans chapter 16, <laughs> where Paul name checks a woman apostle, where Paul talks about women church leaders? Have you read that? The prophetesses that he speaks of in Romans 16? How on earth could you marry up Romans 16, which is Paul explicitly writing to this list of women in ministry, and then somehow think that this passage means there can't be women in ministry? let alone the very internal contradiction that happens where Paul, who's writing in a different section, but in the same letter, three chapters before, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he's talking about covering heads, which is a whole other argument. You can ask me that question for another time. But here he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. So when they pray and they prophesy, things done in church, they need to cover their head. An instruction then of how women should pray and prophesy. Prophesy, by the way, being a teaching and instruction role in the early church. You'd have the prophet who would say, this is what God is saying to us right now, interpreting uh, the times in the light of God's story. So when they pray and when they prophesy, they should cover their head. How do we then marry that up with this? They should be silent and not speak. Is he contradicting himself? Here's what I think is going on, my best shot. And I'll be shot down by lots of different people for this, but here's what I see happening. I see in this scripture something very specific and, and contextual happening. I think this is not a blanket ban for all women everywhere. That doesn't make sense in the light of the other things that Paul says. So what do we do? We take all the references in Paul's other letters and in Acts, uh, and, you know, Paul's place in the early church, do we take all of those things that seem affirming of women in ministry and then say these two scriptures overrule everything else? Or do we say these two scriptures seem to stand out as being different from what we would expect of the New Testament, of what God would want to do, and of what Paul seems to say elsewhere? So I'm not just going to excuse Paul and say, you know, make up an excuse. I think we need to be honest about the fact that we have willfully misinterpreted certain texts because it's fitted an agenda of holding women down and holding women back. We need to repent of that if we haven't yet. If we hold any of that stuff in our hearts, we've got to let go of it. We've got to ask God to cleanse us of it. We need to ask women for forgiveness if we're holding on to that stuff in our hearts. We just have to because these scriptures have been misapplied. And I think what's happening is, is very, very specific. I think it's specific in 1 Timothy because Timothy is in Ephesus. And there's this group of people in Ephesus, among them some prominent women, who've been arguing that it's okay to blend some of the worship of Diana of the Ephesians. And with all that's happening with that, which included temple prostitution and all kinds of things, to blend that in with Christianity. I think we look at the language that Paul uses in the Timothy passage, and he uses this word offertirion, which is used elsewhere of, of a group of people who were proposing that it was okay 
to incorporate some of those temple prostitution practices and promoting them to other people. I think Paul is saying the people who teach that can't be an authority. I think that's part of what he's saying, it's specific to Ephesus. And here in Corinth, there's something about the way that the church was structured and how there in Corinth, there was this formal kind of way of having public meetings where it would have scandalized other women, other people for women to be speaking in a particular way in that situation, in some of their meetings. Jonathan, are you saying that Paul might ask people to set aside their freedom in order that the word of gospel might flourish? Well, yeah, I think so. This is the Paul who says, to the Jew, I become a Jew, to the Greek, I become a Greek. I'm going to push on a little bit here and say, even though in Acts chapter 15, Paul argues against the need for Christians to be circumcised. In the following chapter, he has Timothy circumcised so that he can go and minister to the Jews. Is he contradicting himself? Is he, what's going on there in that moment? What's going on if you look at the whole of Paul's teaching is, the blanket teaching is this, freedom. The blanket teaching is this, equality. The blanket teaching is this, you need to not follow the law, but come to faith in Jesus, and that's what saves you. But for the sake of the increase of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel pushing forward, in particular circumstances and in limited particular ways, Paul says sometimes we need to be able to curtail our freedom for a time in order that God's kingdom could maybe push on. And I want to put a real health warning beside this because we're dealing with scriptures that talk about women in ministry and the people who would want to take the idea and say, we live in that culture now, or there's some other reason why we can hold women back by using these texts. And I think using them as an excuse to do that is wrong. It is wrong. I think we have to grapple with them. We have to be clear that they've been misapplied and misinterpreted. We have to be clear that they fly in the face of what Jesus seems to do. The very first apostles were, were women of the apostles of the resurrection. It's women that Jesus chooses to go and tell people that he's risen, the very first messengers. It's women that Jesus uh, reveals himself to after resurrection. It's women that are used by God through the story of his dealings with humans always to bring life into the world, to bring life into the church, to prophesy, to teach, to lead. God uses women and men equally. And Paul teaches that. Paul teaches in the kingdom of God, there is no man or woman. There is no slave or free, Jew or Greek. There's just people now. You know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a hierarchy of men in closer to Jesus and the women who are elsewhere. There's not going to be any separation with this group of people are better than that group of people. There'll be the Jews over there and the Greeks over there. There'll be those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are slaves, those who are free those who are black, those who are white. There won't be those divisions. It'll just be humanity. And my guess is you probably believe that too, and I hope you believe that because I'm certain it's the truth. And Jesus teaches us to pray this prayer. Let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. If in heaven there is no slave, no free, no woman, no man, no Jew, no Gentile, why on earth? Why on earth would we seek to bring those divisions here on earth? Why would we do that? 
when we're those who are working to see the kingdom of God come. So what we have to do is take a look at the big picture. What's the big picture of what God is doing? What's the big picture of God's story? Hang on a minute. These two instances seem to fly in the face of that. So do we rewrite everything we know about who Jesus is and what God is doing? Do we rewrite all of that stuff in the light of these two scriptures? Or do we say, hang on a minute, the light of what Jesus is doing and the light of the rest of scripture shines on these scriptures and shows us that there's something else that we have to understand here which is why for me, I would say in exactly the same way that we don't say to people when they become a follower of Jesus, have you been circumcised? You need to go and get circumcised so that you can go and speak to Jewish men. We don't. We don't do that. We just don't. So we need to stop saying to women, you must be silent because our context is not that context. There is no reason for us to place that limitation on people. So I hope that helps, but that's where I'm at on the issue. Any other questions coming in just yet? Not yet. That's fine. So we've got one more question, and it comes from Nathaniel. Hi, Nathaniel. <laughs> he waves at me across the room, but it's a really good question. And we're back at worship. We are at worship a bit earlier on. Nathaniel asked, do I think that worship music loses its soul when it becomes commercialized? That's a great question, Nathaniel. Uh, I'm looking at the, the camera so you can see me, but he's right there just behind the camera. It is a great question. And there is this balance, not a balance. There is a temptation, I think, sometimes for worship to become performance. For worship to become something else. And when sung worship and the music that we used to worship becomes an industry, when it becomes the main means of somebody's income, when it becomes something that's more important than what worship is meant to do, then yeah, it's lost its soul. I mean, not in the sense that it has an everlasting soul. It's an inanimate thing. It's just worship. But the question really is, it's raison d'etre, it's purpose, it's what it's for, it's authenticity. And yeah, I think there is a temptation to do that sometimes. Hear me out. I love contemporary worship. In our church, we love sung worship. I mean, should you ever come visit, then be ready that most of the first hour when we're together is sung worship. We love it. Can't get enough of it. And it's good and it's contemporary and it's, we just love singing. That's who we are. But we're singing because it's expressing something of what's in our hearts. It's, somebody once said to me, we sing because we can't fly. Like if we could fly we would just fly in exuberance of what god has done we can't so we sing some of us can't dance or feel very restricted about dancing so we sing we're expressing something we're finding words and finding a way of connecting our lives and our thoughts and the things that inspire us and our responses and our feelings we're finding a way to communicate that and and sung worship in our churches should be unlocking that. It should be facilitating and enabling the expression of what's in people's hearts to be spoken out and sung to God. That's very different from singing along with a track in a concert. That's very, very different from a well-timed key change feeling like a move of the Spirit. So we need to be really clear that what we're about is about using music, using song, using words in our sung worship to help us express something to God that is in our hearts. And it needs to stay in that place. 
when all it becomes is an industry, it's lost it. It's lost it. So, yeah, I think there can be an over-commercialization, which causes sung worship to lose some of its authenticity and its meaning. Let me say, I don't see that happening too often. I don't see it happening in many churches. What I see in the majority of churches that I've spent time with and know is people genuinely seeking to facilitate that kind of heart-to-heart -heart communication. And we use songs to do it and music to do it because that's one of the things that God's given us. Uh, so I don't see that happening too often in our churches, but my guess is that it can be happening in, uh, in other places. I'm just going to take a quick look and uh, just check one or two other quick sources online to see if there have been other questions coming in. And it doesn't look like there have been. Oh, let me just check that one. No, uh, they might be there, but I've missed it. So if there aren't any other questions, then I am going to draw a line there and say, it's been great to be with you and uh, I'm great that you've been able to share this. If you have questions, then do let me know them and we'll try and include them in next week's live stream. A couple of other things quickly to mention. I know a number of folks from Woodford Baptist Church will be tuning into this. One of the things that we really want to be doing is seeing Thursdays in the life of our church as our day of prayer and fasting, a day where we seek to draw closer to God. Uh, next week, I might just do a little teaching on fasting anyway, just to preempt that question that some will have. Why do we fast? Um, we might begin there if I remember. Um, and so Thursdays are going to be our day of prayer and fasting. If you are uh, WBC folks, Thursday evenings are going to become a chance for us to pray together. Starting uh, next Thursday, the 7th, uh, we're going to be having an 8 o'clock prayer meeting on Zoom. The link will be on our Facebook page. Uh, so that's facebook.com forward slash Woodford Baptist. Uh, you'll find a link there uh, later in the week to a Zoom prayer meeting at 8 o'clock on Thursday. And our aim is to keep doing that every Thursday at 8. Uh, so do plan to be there for that. And we're going to begin in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, uh, to come to that place that we see in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, uh, where we call out to God to come and heal the land, where we ask him to, to, to bring changes into our lives where he wants to bring change and that we would be humble and repentant before him, um, but also that we would have the strength and the grace to live as he wants us to live in this time and in this hour. So we're going to be beginning that next Thursday. This coming Sunday, Sunday morning at 10.30, it'll be our live stream over on YouTube. That's youtube.com forward slash C, the letter C, forward slash Woodford Baptist Church. We'll be live from 10.30 and it'll be communion this Sunday. So do please have some bread with you and uh, something suitable to drink and we'll share communion then. Uh, again, if you have questions, please ask them uh, in the comments underneath this video, whether you're watching this on YouTube or watching this on Facebook, please do feel free to leave a comment here, in a question here in the comments and uh, we'll try and include that in next week's uh, broadcast. But thank you for being with us, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you sometime soon.